Welcome to Pick the Voices, the interview series conducted by the faculty of the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking with notable members of the broader Pick community. Our goal is to present our community with a variety of voices across the spectrum of the humanities and critical creative thinking. My name is Christoph van Houten, and today it is my honor and pleasure to be joined by Laurie Zoloth, a Margaret E. Burton Professor of Religion and Ethics at the Divinity School of the University of Chicago. Hello, Laurie, and welcome. Thank you for inviting me. It's lovely to bring an American voice. It's our <laughs> pleasure. As every day passes and we still find ourselves thrown in this pandemic, it is ever clear that not only are we together involved in one big struggle of public health, but it has also become clear that we all find ourselves in one big ethical conundrum. What is it that we have to do? How can we weigh the different aspects out one against the other of the choices we have to make? And what is the right one? These are some of the questions we are almost daily confronted with. So it seems we needed some type of global pandemic to bring ethics back to the forefront of public discourse. Now, for as much as a global, global pandemic is obviously not a good thing, having ethics at the center at, as, as a central concern is obviously a very good thing. So let me start by focusing on some issues where ethics can and even should be on the fore. And let me begin with what is most pressing at this moment, namely the distribution of vaccines. How should Lori, a morally sustainable procedure of vaccination rollout look like, according to you, globally? And second question, are we anywhere near this? That's an excellent question. Ethics, of course, asks not only what is the right act, but what makes it so. And so I want to start out with what makes it so about, about vaccine distribution. First of all, we have seen in the starkest possible terms what injustice looks like across a society. We've, in America in particular, I live in the city of Chicago, we've known for a long time that the lifespan of people who live in the south of Chicago, south, the south side where I live, where Barack Obama did his community organizing, and um, live an average of 30 years less than people who live in the north side, who live in the privileged areas. We've known that's, that's been true for a long time, but it was became immediate and visceral um, when the pandemic hit, because of course it followed the same pattern. If you had access to healthcare, if you had a, um, a larger home, if you had the kind of job where you could sequester in your house during lockdown, you were largely spared the, the most, the most of the morbidity and mortality of the epidemic. But my neighbors who live in the south side were hit very, very hard in the south and west side of the city, and it was it was quite stark. And so that injustice could be was made visible. So that was one thing. Why? What makes what makes the right act possible? What's the justification for the right act? The duty arises from the, the from the injustice itself. It arises from the brokenness of the world that is now newly visible. So that's one thing. The second motivation has to be that we um, we are for each other. The philosopher that I study is um, Emmanuel Levinas. Um, Lithuanian French Jewish philosopher um, thought of himself as a, as a, a French citizen very very fiercely very very much so. um, <laughs> very skeptical about the American experiment perhaps it's, he was right it turns out and and what happens what you know his his um, nature of Levinas's ethics is that this is an ontological uh, a self defining discussion this is not just about rightness or wrongness or morals or not morals. It's about who I am as a person. What does this act make of me? And we want to be the kind of humans that are for one another, that in Levinas's words, that 
that come up with whatever is needed when we're the ones who bring the goods to the to, to the other. So that's the second justification is you want to live in a in a society, in a world in which we are for one another, in which my neighbor's death really names me and defines me and calls to me. And that I don't turn from that call. So those reasons, the injustice itself and the necessity of our being call us to, to look at, at vaccine distribution. And two things have ha- are happen, happening that are ethically troubling for, for the vaccine distribution. The first is um, that if you are an industrialized country with wealth and power and scientific know-how and lots of money, um, you have the vaccine and your citizens are can, can walk into now in America, you can walk into any drugstore and you can get the vaccine and it's free. It's the access barriers have been dropped where first there was a scramble for a couple of months. Now anyone can get an appointment and anyone can get vaccinated anywhere in the country. The, the, so that's, that's not fair. That why, why should the accident of my birth as an American entitle me to any more, an easy vaccine that's, that is so critically life-saving where if I happen to be, you know, born in Mumbai, I wouldn't have that access. If I happen to be born in most of Africa and in Eastern Europe, for instance, it's very, very difficult to access. So that's the the that's that's the first ethical problem. How do you make you know in a pandemic that is global and and affects every single human being in exactly the same way? We are naive to the virus. And how do you how do you how what how is it possibly ethically justifiable to to give the vaccine first to the people with the most money. It's just, that's that's an ethical tragedy. So that's one thing. The second thing is that people are not taking the vaccine. People are refusing the vaccine. And that that's the other enormous ethical problem. And that's gonna be a problem in place after place. This, this terrible idea, this very bad idea that your body belongs to you and that you can you're in charge of your body in some sort of proprietary way is a mistaken idea about in terms of public health it's a mistaken idea i think theologically it's a mistaken idea philosophically if you don't take the vaccine and you don't and you refuse it then you you're we're going to be living in a world where this is a, a deadly disease is constantly at our throats and that's that's a terrible way to live it makes me very sad it feels like um in America, it feels an American example is like giving off the playground to the bullies, you know, and, and the bullies take over the playground while the rest of us kind of cower by the by the jungle gym. And that that is not a world I want to help, I want to create. I want to work at creating a world in which reason and good arguments and compassion um, and sensibility and good science are the dominant ideas and not the bad ideas about selfishness mm. and the personal ownership of one's personal body is if the rest is if the rest of the world doesn't exist for you. So those are those are some of those are the ethical issues and those are the ethical norms that we're going to have to struggle with. And you're exactly right. It is for me an extraordinary thing to be asked over and over and over again about injustice. Mm. I'm glad that it's I'm 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 you know, miserable by the by made miserable by the pandemic and the deep tragedy which has affected my family and so many other families. But it is in fact the case that it's given me an opportunity to say, um, healthcare is not just, we have to make it just <laughs> to every report that calls. And that's new. Yeah, yeah, thanks for this. And and you already uh, mentioned, I think y- your two points are, are basically the, the main points around which all the questions uh, uh, will circle. And I think I'm not the only one who will have circled around these questions because it's it's it's, it's rather clear to everybody. Now, as, as to come back to one issue, the first issue you mentioned, as we can see that in certain countries, for example, Israel, um, there 
being rather successful in their vaccination program, but also in the States already. And they are lowering numbers of cases of deaths and, and, uh, and uh, of, of people who test positive and who get the virus. But other countries or even whole regions of the earth, they're still struggling because of insufficient vaccine supply and or other factors. Now, how can one ethically come to terms with this? And or are we on the brink of turning COVID-19 into one more so-called third world disease like diarrhea, which is still, and people are always surprised by this, which is still one of the main global killers, especially amongst children. So are we facing the problem of sidelining all moral problems because of some technical or economic capacity? Well, we have the capacity to make enough vaccine to everyone. You could see how America, we have we have enough vaccine for every single adult American and rapidly we'll have it for children as well. That didn't take very long really. So we can we can produce enough vaccine, especially in concert with China and the Soviet Union, I'm sorry, Russia, old habits. Um, um, with you know, with with those with everyone working together, it's not it's, that technical problem can be overcome. Here's what I worry about, which is before COVID, I was focused on malaria mm-hmm. as my ethical problem that I'm that I'm thinking about and writing about, and focusing on. I was looking very carefully at the new at gene drives, the new technologies coming out of of such groups, academic groups as target malaria, um, mm-hmm. new technologies for a disease that has been a part of human history, actually even pre-human history um, forever, right? Mm-hmm. Since pre, not I mean, it was probably predated the emergence of humans as non, non, of humans primates as a species. Um, very successful disease. And it's still, horrifyingly enough, is killing, despite all the bed nets and all the interventions, still killing half a million children, mostly, and mostly children of color throughout the world, every year, year after year after year. So we're horrified by the death rate in COVID, but I've long been horrified by the death rate of that one disease, not to mention dengue fever, the largest growing Vaccine, uh, large growing vector borne disease in the world, not to mention, as, as you said, you know, infant diarrhea, mm. um, malnutrition, and, um, and very common things that you know, 19th century diseases that have 20th century solutions that here in the 21st century we don't fund. Mm. Right? Malaria in particular has been underfunded, funded to about 50% of what it needs to combat it. Even in the high, in the, the the heady days of 1955-56, when there was a worldwide DDT campaign, still didn't have enough money to do it properly, which is one of the reasons that we still have malaria. Mm-hmm. So, and we go, we went through every day, and I would give a talk, and I'd say every two minutes, someone, usually a, a, an African child or a child in in Southeast Asia, every two minutes a child dies of malaria, a completely you know, uh, we can address this disease. We've wiped it out of Russia. We've wiped it out of the Southern United States. We've wiped it out of Southern England. I mean, all these places where malaria was endemic, we've stopped it from being there. We've cured it and stopped it, prevented. We could do it, but we, if you don't, we don't have the will. And so at the end of every talk, there would have been, you know, if I talked for an hour, there'd be 30 more dead children. Mm-hmm. And we clearly accepted that as like, oh, well, that's just, you know, the impoverished, you know, developing world. What's you know, and we accept a, a level of of deprivation and of poverty and of death that is <laughs> unsupportable. Mm. It's just it's it's it was, But my fear is that yeah, we would we could just allow that to happen if if the people who we decide are we um, can be vaccinated, then 
where we don't have the economic impulse to go forward. It's one of the reasons I study religion is because we're so, um, because capitalism doesn't really give you the motive to go forward, the motive to turn to the face of the suffering other and say, I have an absolute obligation to make sure that you, that you too live a life of human flourishing. And so without those philosophical or theological tools in common, we really clearly have failed in the past and we're in danger of failing again. The horrible thing about this disease in particular, unlike say infant diarrhea, is its highly contagious nature. It will make the point to us if we ignore it um, through a deadly change in, it, it's, it's, um, in its structure, its protein structure through a mutation. It, become, it could become more deadly. It could become much more contagious and it could come back to haunt us. Our failure could come back this time to haunt us and cause a new wave of epidemic disease. And horrifyingly enough, as, as we stagger out of this pandemic, there's nothing to prevent a new pandemic, either a flu variant or another coronavirus variant from emerging tomorrow mm. and starting the whole story over again. And, we, we, and if we haven't learned the lessons of, of how one treats one the other, then we're gonna be exactly in the same place, mm. just you know, buckled by, by the weight of this disease. Mm. A lot yeah. of times I think there's, there's the questions that these, um, that I ask in philosophy, I, and they make me think about this, the, the problem you've just said about the deep injustice, the global injustice, is that I say, you know, Kant has three questions. So Zoloth has three questions too. <laughs> and my questions are, um, what does it mean to be human? Mm. And what does it mean to be free? And what must I do about the suffering of the other? Mm. So those three questions about ontological questions and questions of liberation and questions about duty, those, I've always structured my work around those three questions. And in this epidemic, we've really seen the world struggle to answer that and not do well, sadly enough, mm. unfortunately. Um, we, we weren't terrible and doctors and nurses were exquisitely brave, exquisitely brave, noble in every country. There was never a situation where, where doctors and nurses walked out on patients, refused mm. to treat patients, even under the worst conditions. But the rest of the populations, the citizen response could have been better. We could, you really have to ask, you know, what does this make of us? And what's our, why, why this confusion around freedom? Why do people actually, why do people actually look at me and say, well, professor, but I want to be free. I don't want a mask. I mean, what, what sort of crazy confusion is that around the nature of liberation? So, and so, it's, so that can be, that's, that we have a lot of work to do in terms of thinking about those things. And of course the suffering of the other, when did people, when people say, you know, it's my body, I don't, you know, I know what to do for my body as if they have no responsibility at all. Mm. You know, the kid in Africa, the kid, you know, dying today in, in India, in, mm. in the midst of this, this raging epidemic, we should be stopping and mm. stopping our lives to think about that. But of course, in, in the West, we, we don't do that. We don't, mm. we don't stop. We don't stop and attend until we're, we're forced to actually. Yeah, unfortunately, I think you're right. Now, if, if we try to think about how ethics and, and morals can help in, in, in topics that will be uh, become ever more prone to be, be uh, thought about and discussed, is that um, one thing uh, that is becoming ever more clear, and also the, the things that the, our political leaders are talking about, is that this pandemic will, uh, will create or even enforce uh, social stratifications, maybe even emphasize the already existing social stratifications on a, 
a local and a global level. I'm just thinking here about the uh, new passport, the sanitary passport that they're thinking about of creating mm -hmm. here in Europe. And that is already in existence in Israel. How do you take, of how do you stand against or in favor this differentiation of citizenry? I think when, when the vaccine is free and available to everyone, and really available to everyone, really accessible, then I, I'm in favor of passports. I really am. I don't I don't want to be, I don't, I don't think my potential for human flourishing should be impeded by somebody's refusal. I just and I don't and I'm not at all ashamed of, of, of making people feel bad. You know, I felt the same way about masks. You know, you don't want to wear a mask because you think that makes you free. Great, but I'm gonna yell at you and tell you you tell you it, it, it's offensive, tell you you're not a good citizen, tell you I don't want to walk by you on the street and you're going to have to hear that because you can be free not to do it but you can't be free of my scorn and my oral approbation yeah. and that and i feel the same way about vaccine passport i have a, i have a i carry a yellow card in my passport now a, a yellow booklet that lists the vaccines i've had i can't go i had i had to get a yellow fever vaccine at some risk um when i traveled in africa a couple of years ago mm. it was it wasn't an imposition of my freedom it was how lucky i am that i was able to travel right mm. if able to afford a vaccine. So, you know, I, I don't think there's anything at all offensive about societies protecting themselves from this kind of risk. Um, so I think it's fine. I, I, I think it's actually, and it makes the point that this, that we actually believe in this. It's not some fantasy or, or affection for state control that makes me want to be vaccinated. It's because there's a scientific reason that I believe in and that I think is important and that I fear um, is necessary because vulnerable people in our society will not live if there's not herd immunity. It's it's not. I'm 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 actually sad that people are giving up so easily. I don't like the front page New York Times article saying, "Oh, we think we'll never make herd immunity." Well, like, come on, pull it off, get it together. You know, really enough already. And and I and I I'm I've never liked bullies, and I and I feel like um, the the all the tiptoeing about about vaccine hesitancy is is just silly. It's, mm. it's, it's, it's like, you know, allowing people with tin hats to run the government. It's ridiculous. You know, it's, I mean, maybe in America, people used to put tinfoil on their heads to protect them from space rays. Exactly. And widely understood as a, a metaphor for complete nonsense. So. <laughs> no, no, the image is clear. <laughs> yeah. It's very clear. Now, staying in the context of, of the, the last question. Now, for as, as much as one does could, justify this social stratification on a purely medical basis, uh, we all know that nothing is purely medical in this pandemic. And an awful lot is only medical on the surface, but very political and economic at the source. And this, I think, uh, is very problematic. Now, you once made the argument that healthcare cannot be left to market forces to regulate them. But the reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic seems to put a similar stance, even the sheer possibility of holding a similar stance, as very hard to defend. I would like you to defend yourself, though. I want. To, I don't think that it should be a market base. We've, it, it's a, one of the <laughs> tragedies of the 21st century is this idea that medicine should make you rich. That, you should, that it's a profit center. It's ridiculous, right? And, and that was something that you know, of course, in in earlier historical periods, that would have been seen as laughable. It was just not yeah. a part of commerce. It was, you know, you, it was a part of what societies did for your families, actually, or communities did for one another. It wasn't to make. It wasn't to make a earn a living. Um, actually, because it didn't work all that well, so we had less effective for medicine and for medical medical practitioners. But the idea that it should be the, the that the people should become wealthy um, and make millions of dollars off of their off of their 
training as physicians is nonsense. And the, one of the ways that that's enforced in societies is by artificially constraining the number of people that can become doctors. So, it, you know, so that if you really opened it up and said, we're going to train as many people as have the capacity to be physicians and we're going to, and we're going to make sure that's, that's true. And there'll be many, many more people with those skills and those capacities. Um, there's certainly people who are smart enough that they just quote in America, you know, it's very difficult to get into medical school. And then, mm. and then there, so there's no reason to do that. Of course you could, you could change that. That's the first thing that you change. And the second thing is that you should, we should really have a conversation about what we think a, a decent, um, Comp, you know, compensation is for your work, for all sorts of work, not just for being a doctor. Mm. But we don't have to necessarily take as a given that the dean of medical schools make, you know, $6 million a year. That seems ridiculous. So mm. we have to really take a serious look at, at cost before we begin to, to um, before we really begin to transform medicine. And America has a, the most tragically distorted system, the system most, most um, underwritten by by a marketplace economy, and it should be disentangled from that. Nearly every other country um, in the developed world and, and in, in, in the developing world in the global south has figured this out. And the countries with the best healthcare systems, you mentioned Israel, that's one, New Zealand, there's another. Um, they've done well because people trust their national health service. They love their national health service. And they, they, people in Britain, for instance, rose to protect their national health service. And that's true for most, most civilized countries. It's only, it's only America where it was a patchwork of random county, you know, beleaguered, underpaid county public health officers, you know, trying to trying to hold back the avalanche of cases that overwhelmed. So that I think and, and hospitals that have been used to being run with an attention to the bottom line and attention to outcomes over and over again. And they meant financial outcomes where, you know, these vast billing departments. So, yeah, I I think it's a mistake to to run healthcare as a profit center. I think it's one of the, I think it would be like running the library system as a center for profit. It's, it's, it's similarly okay. absurd. And unfortunately, I don't think it's only something that is uh, is due to the American citizen. Uh, also many of the European countries have thought of making or following the, the American example in this. So you're not alone in the <laughs> negativity. Now, if you allow me to play the devil's advocate for a little sure. bit. Um, for as much as this uh, newly found emphasis on ethics is, which I already mentioned, is very positive, I often wonder if all this reference to the importance of it in, and especially in the decision-making process, is not operating in a very similar way like the magician's stick. It might be that I am a bit too cynical here, but I often think it is merely meant to attract the attention so that at the same time that attention can be guided away from what is actually occurring. I could give many examples here of people who talk about ethics and moral and moral decision making, but then when the moment comes and they have to share or they have to make an ethical decision, they absolutely don't. So, how would you react to this provocation? How is ethics uh, used here in as a magician stick, or do you think I'm too cynical? That's pretty cynical. <laughs> oh golly. Um, I worry about the 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 magician the, the diversion technique in, in magic. I do I worry about that for things like big pharma, right? Mm -hmm. Like we were we were we were righteously angry at big pharmaceutical companies for their obscene profits on drugs. And now we suddenly have to embrace them because they saved they 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 saved our lives, right? And so it's this notion of like paradoxically, big pharma has become our savior. 
So I do worry that we'll forget that we didn't like that they had patents on drugs. We didn't like that that they, that they made obscene profits on ordinary things, that they randomly jacked up the price of drugs that were desperately needed by people and made healthcare such a commodity. So they were so that's that's one that, that's one very clear way to do it. I mean, obviously we see that happening with them <laughs> with BP oil when they promise us that they're, you know, they put a daisy on their logo and promise <laughs> that they're making the earth green. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. you know, when, and so that that happens a lot. It's an advertising ploy. And we have to be alert alert to that that question. And and I think that that's, you know, I think that's something we have to be wary of. I'm less cynical. I think more more worrisome is this notion that there's two sides. The two side problem. Well, there's two sides to every issue. We have to really examine it, explore it. That's the fair way to be. That's the freedom of press to show both sides. And then and some issues, you know, there's not two sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> there really isn't. And it's the you know the other side has been disproven, and we move on. And that's mm-hmm. how that, we call that progress. Um, so maybe there's, there's that. I'm I'm more worried. We, we'll we pay more attention to people's feelings than to their than to their thoughts. Mm-hmm. I. I you know, I've said this as, you know, all the time. I'm sort of noted for saying this. I don't really care what you feel. I, what I care is what you think. Mm. And, you know, and doing the right thing will make you feel terrible a lot of the time. It's really hard. It's hard mm. to be adult human in modernity. Modernity makes you feel terrible a lot of the time. It doesn't matter. Mm. You have to do what you have to really think through what is right and do what is right, and that's very hard. And mm. Doesn't always feel good, you know. So, um, or you know, or ice cream wouldn't be so popular. So, you know, the, 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 the so that's so I think we 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 we're very we use feelings as a, as a reason. We use feelings as an excuse much more than ethics. I think, but I do think it's possible. I think, um, I think this really was a very strong call. Like how how brave would I be? How wh- how how did I balance the Aristotelian? drama between you know, you know fear and recklessness and to get to courage in my mm. actions mm. and i think that maybe i'm a you know philosopher i overthink it i always bring aristotle home to, to <laughs> lebanon and aristotle arguing you know but but i do think it everyone had to make a decision about um about fighting for fighting for place for their for the vaccines you know how mm. hard would you fight mm. um and i think we were you were lucky if you weren't forced with that choice i in my neighborhood, there was a lottery, but okay. I I realized I benefited because I live in the the South Side neighborhood near the University of Chicago, okay. and so my neighborhood because the neighborhood paradoxically was so badly affected by by COVID, um, but though not me, my neighbors you know bore the weight of that, and then I received the benefit of being in the first rounds of the lottery because I just simply because I lived in this neighborhood. So I think in in every way. We have already taken um, taken the bet. If you mm. live a life of privilege, are, are ready to be uh, uh, in America to be a person who is white, to be a person who is was born into a, a middle class existence, who was educated in the in the frankly ruling class um, institutions, or even in my case in the in the in the great public institutions of, of the state of California, that those institutions you know, give you a kind of ticket to privilege that every more, every gesture of your life is to partake of that privilege. Mm. Simply, simply because of your class stand, you are already always, you're already always first in line. Mm. And 
the epidemic makes it um, more visible, but it's it's really always it's always apparent. It should be, and we should be aware of that. When and, you know, we we we're a long way from Rawls's veil of ignorance. We know just where we stand, and we're always checking that and you know maneuvering and shifting into those positions. I mean, that's what that's what popular culture is to some sense. It's a constant negotiation of that privilege, and a, and a um, jockeying into position. And and I can say one thing, which is at least the most grotesque version of that did not happen mm. because the vaccine was made free in America. Mm. So it really was true that wealthy people didn't get it first. It was really true that you know Dolly Parton had to wait, even though she had funded it. Right? It was really true that. The, the wealthy and privileged people did not push to the front of the line. It could have been far worse. Really, it could have been far worse. Mm. So many other things are far worse. Okay. And, and that's, it, it, it really, people really made an effort to make sure that the poor get vaccinated in, in our own cities. So it was, wasn't perfect when, it, when, there, when there was discrepancies seen, they were noted, the press noted, and raised the alarm and people immediately tried to address it. So I think in terms of trying to distribute the vaccine swiftly and fairly, at least um, within the countries, it, we did a better job than when one could have, one mm. pessimistic philosophers would have imagined. Okay, well, that's good. That's good to know. It, however, continuing in the devilish trends, one more question in that of that kind. So, although I will not obviously I will obviously not argue against vaccines. I would like to make a claim that might seem again a little bit over the top, but just to see how an ethicist uh, thinks about it. So I would I would like to claim that in an already overly medicalized world, and you already mentioned that as well. So it is somewhat problematic that once again, we are told that the solution lies in more medicines. I immediately thought when when this this idea came up, I immediately thought like about the shootings in the U.S. Every time there's a shooting in the U.S., you hear the NRA saying that this happened because there weren't enough firearms. So, isn't it a dead end, a vicious, very vicious circle we are in that a a, a virus and an epidemic caused by uh, our behavior is not finding a solution, but is just giving it another uh, type of pill. That's such a good point. Boy, the devil has a great advocate in you. <laughs> so, no, studied theology as well. So I know him a little bit. <laughs> true. So what, I mean, anyone who's read Foucault was given pause by this notion, right? Like, oh no, we've medicalized one more thing. Mm. You know? But here's the deal. Medicines do work. Mm. I mean, you know, AIDS was heavily metaphorized. It, was, it became a metaphor. It became, and, and it required only one thing, which was a radical change in behavior. And yet, you know, what really was, is helpful for, for HIV, for the virus, is, um, is antiviral drugs. Mm. That really, that really, I don't care if it's medicalized. I, I care that, that that virus is not ravaging the um, communities in which those practices were very difficult to forestall. And so that, mm. so I think that's one thing. Um, and that's true for smallpox. Like, I grew true for polio. You know, I grew up in a world where I did not have to worry that my children were going to get polio. My parents were very nervous about it, very worried. You know, summer was constrained. It was very, very, very terrifying way to, you know, to, way to enter childhood. My grandparents, you know, they were afraid of smallpox. They were and smallpox. They ravaged, you know, their their, their villages. Cholera. They had cholera in the villages in 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 Russia where they grew up. You know, they they remembered that for all their lives. 
right? Mm. There, there was a, a lot of concern about those sorts of things. Diphtheria, typhus, typhoid, over and over and over. And the reason we don't have those things is because of drugs, mm. because of vaccines. And we live in a world that, you know, we have the privilege to say, oh, let's not medicalize this. <laughs> because, and the only reason we have the privilege is because we medicalize the hell out of, out of these infectious diseases. Mm. Um, and I look forward to the time when I don't have to worry about, you know, I don't have to look at my, at my neighbor at my other and think that they're a vector for some horrible disease that could kill me and could mm. end my life. And that the disease kept me from my family and kept me from the last, my mother's last year on earth. And so, mm. yeah, I really, I, I think it, 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 while, while I'm as full of irony as the next philosopher, I'm really glad, I'm really glad for the, the, the advent of vaccinations. They're so wildly effective. I mean, it's, mm. you know, I mean, I would have been happy if they were, if they were 60% effective, like the flu vaccine or 40% like the flu mm. vaccine. Yeah. But they're you know, 90, 94, 95%. That's, that's really good. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we're skeptical about science, the fact that I have a critique about science, um, the fact that I think that way too many scientists are you know, too dazzled by money, to be honest, the fact that I'm, you know, I have my heart broken by scientists who lied about their research over and over, all of that is true for me. Mm -hmm. And I, the fact that I don't like medicalizing social problems, all of that's true. But on the other hand, I, I really um, want these vaccines to work just like I want the gene drives to, to be effective and to eliminate malaria because the world would be you know, a better place um, if children were not dying in these staggering numbers from a disease that, that Western children don't have to confront. So I, I just, you know, it, you, can, you can understand that you know, the tool is problematic and yet be grateful for the tool. So that, that I think is, and you know, it's our responsibility to make all these things just and fair and good mm -hmm. and not, it's not really, you know, it's their responsibility to make them effective. It's our responsibility to make them just. Yeah. And, and it's not because something is medicalized when it's justly medicalized and it's a good thing, but maybe other problems uh, that are now yeah. medicalized as well shouldn't be so medicalized. So maybe yeah. it's it, yeah. that, that the devil's question is just about being able to discern in a better way than, and not just throw the kid away with the dirty exactly. water and, as well. And, and some problems, human problems, are just a tragedy. Mm. And if they're medicalized, it doesn't make them better. It makes it might, might distract us. And yet, if it's not medicalized and it's thematized in some other way, it might make it more horrible too, mm -hmm. right? I mean, people now medicalize addiction. <laughs> I know. You know, and we see addiction to alcohol as a medical problem, for instance, you know, Van Gogh would now be in treatment. Mm. And he'd be, on the other hand, it really, would have been nice to have more Van Gogh pictures. Would have been really good in a, in a sanitarium someplace, medicalized, right, doing pictures. But that'd be nice. I'd like a few more Van Goghs. So, so that's one thing. And the other thing is that it didn't, it, you know, before people, they were medicalized, oftentimes they were demonized. Mm. These problems were demonized. And I'm not sure that was any more wholesome or better or more salutary. Mm -hmm. yeah, indeed. Now, to conclude, you mentioned uh, Aristotle. I like to end with Plato. So, <laughs> and uh, I, th there's one thing that in this whole pandemic, uh, one image of Plato that I haven't been able to get out of my head, and that's the problem of the pharmacon. Uh, that's uh, something that he dealt dealt with all of his life, and. Uh, That, that I think is, is getting back to us and, and is again very accurate and an accurate image that we have to 
put in front of us. Now, for those who know Plato, he had a problem with the uh, the, the pharmacon because he feared that the pharmacon would not cure the disease, but only the symptoms of that disease. Now, if 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 I read up on on what is going on in the world, I have a, a, a tremendous fear that we are facing one of these problems again, where the symptoms will be cured and luckily that would mean that people uh, won't die anymore of the disease but that the actual disease will stay with us and the disease is obviously that we are living in a malfunctioning global society so this vaccine will only emphasize uh, or continue so if, if we return to normality or so-called normality i think that the vaccine will have utterly failed is there something you think we can do about this it is such an interesting story. And you know, there's a Talmudic story that's very that I think of whenever I think of Plato worried about that, I think of a Talmudic story in which a rabbi is teaching in the in the in the um in the marketplace in the Agura, just like Plato is, and he sees a hubbub in the corner of the market and he says to his his student, What's with that? And so the student goes over and finds out that it's um a magician, and the magician is selling an elixir for for um eternal life. And the rabbi says, listen, kid, go get me some elixir. I want, I want some of that. And the magician comes over to the rabbi and says, you, this isn't for you. This isn't for you. This is for people who don't have the capacity to have a, a rich relationship with the divine or, or they can't study Torah. They don't have, this isn't, this isn't the kind, I don't, I'm not selling it. I'm not selling it to, to people like you, right? And so this, this notion that, that there's a cheap fix that is the wrong fix. It's the wrong thing. It's the wrong sort of eternal life. Um, notice the Talmud doesn't question that there is such a such a potent, <laughs> and of course, the, in the Talmudic story, the, the disapprobation, the, the, the fact that the, the rabbi turns away means the musician, you know, is, is he's seen, he's revealed as as um as a fraud in that sense, in the deepest mm. sense. And it's a quick little story in the Talmud; not much more is made of it. But it's a little Michelle, a little story, and mm. and I think of that the, the the notion that you know what what are the factors that made this this pandemic problematic and what are the factors in which it ennobled us and what does it reveal about our society? That's the work of the philosopher after a pandemic. Part of the, the trick is we don't really know what caused this. Like we don't know, we don't really, really know if it was a lab accident. I know we're not supposed to think that, but everything I know about labs makes it think, huh, maybe, you know, who knows? <laughs> um, I don't, saying it, it's a, it was a thing about the, you know, eating practices of, of a society that's not our own seems vaguely racist and probably not accurate, didn't really emerge in the marketplace anyway. It's interesting how that story got got put forward. You know, as a progressive, you tell the story of, oh, we, you know, we're encroaching on the natural world and somehow Gaia got us back. I don't like easy narratives like that. I think that they probably aren't true either. So the fact is the most honest answer is we really don't know how this how this spread and we don't know how it started. We don't know, you know, what what happened here. And so it's hard to diagnose our problem if we don't really, really know the etiology. Mm. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, but we do know what made it, what it made it so deadly to our world, our our modern world that we thought nothing could stop. We thought these airplanes were always going to be flying. We thought nothing could turn off the engine of capital. And it turns out, yeah, look at that, look how fragile it is. Mm. It can stop. I mean, the stock market can close all over the world. You know, you can just stop the stock market. Hmm, that's interesting. You can you can ground airplanes. You can stop transportation. You can you can really stop commerce. People can not go into stores to buy things. It it's I mean, obviously we've figured out how to get around the initial barriers, but there was something very powerful about the cessation 
the quiet that descended. Um, we are a, a people, a species that the privileged sector in all countries could fly cheaply, burning our carbon trails against the sky all the time. And maybe so if, when you think about that, you think, yeah, I'm not sure what what started this this event, but I know what what threw um, you know sort of fuel on the fire, and that and that was uh, our lifestyle. That is the sickness of our lifestyle, the rapidity of our lifestyle, the um, the the way that that a certain kind of acquisition became central to us in our society. A certain kind of a certain way that you worked, a certain um, you know. <laughs> The expectation that you would have no leisure time with your family, no home alone in your in your in your room to think, because you always had to be on call for some constant mm. interaction with your employer. Um, that I hope that doesn't return. I hope we don't return to you know being called by your boss on a Sunday morning, mm. <laughs> expected to do something. But I, you know, I think that we we need to figure out better ways of sharing the world. Obviously, living together. I, the fact that this big, important and expensive drug could be free, it just could be, mm. should, we should remember that mm. when we talk about drugs is too expensive or the inability to provide medications for all. So I think hopefully this, is, this has taught us really important lessons. And then the tragedy is that real people, and usually the poorest people in societies, died terrible, terrifying, lonely deaths. Mm. And that and I don't like the idea as, as a philosopher who thinks about justice. I don't like the idea that they paid the price. The poorest people in my city paid the price for my enlightenment. There's mm. something really disturbing about that notion. So I think we have to be really careful when we, you know, when we reflect on the epidemic to always foreground those faces and those, those lives and those families, because, the, you know, so much was lost. Mm. A staggering amounts and it's still going on you know mm -hmm. the people who are dying as we speak in india in mm. enormous numbers and the people who will continue to die as long as the vaccine isn't widely available mm. is is you know it's it's tragic and it's staggering we have to figure out how to get people how to get people to understand they must take this vaccine it that mm. is i don't like the i don't like giving up Mm. Only a few months in, I, I'm very, I'm sort of horrified by the capacity of of pundits to say, "Oh well, can't do this. Too hard. <laughs> like yeah. it's just too hard for us." I just and that that I I want to just grab them at their collars and say, "No, don't say that. Just keep saying it. Keeps one person each every day more and more vaccinated because mm. we have to. Because in the name of those poor people who are who are, who won't get the vaccine, it has to be imperative." You know, every village, every place, just like polio was. Polio, you know, if this attitude had been allowed to exist, polio would still be running around the world mm. and, and you know, killing children and crippling children. So I don't think, I think it's, as concerned citizens should, should continue to say, public health experts, don't give up. It's a mistake. It's too mm. early to give up. Don't give up. Mm. Because it's too easy to give up. Okay, thank you so much, Laurie, for these provocative thoughts you've shared with us. Okay, thank you so much for asking me. Um, I really hope the day comes when I can actually be in Paris. Yes. Be in Switzerland. Yes, that they have opened everything have, up again. Yeah, you can come to Chicago.
Yeah. <laughs> Much less attractive, I understand, but still fun. <laughs> I didn't say that. I just thought it. <laughs> well, thank you for being with us. <laughs> okay. And thanks nice also to our listeners for having joined us once again here at Picked Voices. And you, dear listeners, if you like our volunteer work here at Picked, you can now also consider supporting us by becoming an active member of our institution. For more information about how to join Picked, please visit our website. My name is Christoph van Houten. Goodbye and thank you.